Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about maritime disputes. On April 12, 2021, CNN reported, US and China deploy aircraft carriers in South China Sea as tensions simmer. Those tensions were fueled by 200-plus Chinese vessels moored at Whitsun Reef within the limits of the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. The incident is part of a global trend of increasing maritime disputes, and it gives rise to concerns about the freedom of the seas. That's why I called Sarah McLaughlin Mitchell, professor of political science at the University of Iowa. Her research focuses on international conflict, in particular territorial, river, and maritime issues. Sarah and I discuss the ins and outs of the disputes in the South China Sea, how climate change increases the risk of maritime conflict, why some of those conflicts turn violent while others are resolved peacefully, whether the United States needs a larger fleet, and finally, what maritime conflicts we should worry about. Now, I'm excited to welcome Sarah Mitchell as our April guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Before we turn to the sea, I'd like to talk to you about your home state for a minute. From Iowa farm girl to Iowa professor, that's the title of an essay you wrote recently. And in it, you say your interest in global politics was sparked early. Tell us how that happened in landlocked Iowa. I grew up on a farm in Iowa and my parents were always, you know, following politics and active in politics. And a lot of people in farming communities pay a lot of attention to climate change and water issues. And so I think even though I grew up in a landlocked city, I became interested in land and water issues from a very early age. This is the Berlin Security Beat. And I always ask, what song would you say best describes the current state of the world? This was a hard question. <laughs> so I came up with Another Way to Die by Disturbed. Uh, it's, it's a song that talks about climate change and how we ravage the world that we love and talks about sort of ticking time bomb for saving our planet from global warming and climate change. And so I've been doing a lot of work on climate volatility and natural disasters. And so perhaps this tune best describes what's on my mind these days. That's a very timely choice. Thank you. The past few weeks, we've seen a war of words between the Philippine and Chinese embassy officials, over 200 plus Chinese vessels moored at the Whitsun Reef in the South China Sea. Now, China and the U.S. have both deployed aircraft carriers. It's getting crowded. What's going on in the South China Sea? <laughs> well, China has made claims in an area that's called the Nine Dash Line. And this is an area that extends into the South China Sea more than 500 miles from their coast. And under maritime law, countries have the right to make up to 200 nautical mile claims through their exclusive economic zones. Now, China is claiming this area on the basis of historical rights, so that their fishermen were fishing in the Spratly and other islands in that area. And so Vietnam also uh, makes claims in this area beyond their easy uh, due to historical rights. So essentially, you have several countries in the region, Malaysia, Brunei, 
Philippines, China, Vietnam, all competing for resources in this area. And it's an important resource area. In 2015, 12% of global fish catches happened in the South China Sea. And there's a large amount of oil and natural gas resources that are already being drilled. And there, there are just as many potential resources estimated to be undiscovered in the area. So this is why China has uh, built up uh, artificial islands to try to stake out their claims in the area. They've also built more military installations on some of those islands. And the maritime militia is sort of the most recent move in a way of increasing de facto control over these contested areas by having large amounts of fishing vessels, but really they're not fishing vessels. They're equipped with you know stronger holes and they're faster than fishing boats. What have the other countries done about this except complain? <laughs> So interestingly, the Philippines, uh, in the past, there's been some cooperation with China under Duterte's leadership, but he pushed back against this move around Woodson Reef and increased Philippine naval patrols around the area, articulated the arbitration award that recognized the Philippines 200 mile EEZ area in this particular place, and then began joint military exercises with the US Navy in the past couple of days. So I think there was some tension between the US and the Philippines under his leadership and, and this recent use of maritime militia has brought the US and Philippines back together in a way. So you've covered the economic and geostrategic relevance of the South China Sea, but that's not the only maritime conflict you've looked at. You analyzed 270 diplomatic claims over maritime areas all around the world from 1900 to 2010. And based on that, you developed a theoretical model that helps identify which factors increase the chances of maritime conflict outbreak, militarization, and peaceful resolution. I'd like to begin at the beginning and ask, what triggers maritime conflict? So traditionally, a lot of wars in history have been fought over territory. So competition over the drawing of land boundaries or the ownership of islands. And there are still a lot of those territorial disagreements. Our project codes over 860 of those territorial disputes since 1816. But maritime conflicts have increased over the past century. So we've seen a real rise in the amount of conflicts over the ownership or sovereignty, as I just said, with EEZ claims. Or we could also have maritime conflicts that involve access to resources. So the U.S. had conflicts with Ecuador and Peru over tuna fishing rights, or you can think of the Cod Wars back in the 70s and 80s, where Great Britain was protecting British fishermen having access to fishing around Iceland. And there are also strategic locations or shipping lanes that could be contested, as in the historical case of the Corfu Strait, where Albania uh, mined the strait and, and Britain protested against that. So these are some of the types of conflicts that we collect data on. So if I'm understanding this right, the territorial conflicts decrease while the conflicts over maritime areas increase. Why do you think that is? So I think there's several reasons why we've seen a increase in maritime conflicts. First of all, they are connected to territorial disputes. So 
Sometimes if we think about the Senkaku Diao conflict between China and Japan, it's both a disagreement over who owns the island, but also who has sovereignty of the resources around the island or the Falklands, which led to war between Great Britain and Argentina is another example. We also find that as U.S. naval power, the share of global naval power has declined, there's been an increase in maritime conflicts around the world. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah. And so a lot of countries that are making revisionist claims at sea right now, including China, Iran, and Russia, have invested very heavily in building up their navies. And so I think this is an area of potential, you know, militarized clashes between countries. But we do find that if countries are more evenly matched in terms of their naval capabilities, then they're more likely to use peaceful negotiations. And so there has been some militarization of the Senkaku Diago case, but because of the U.S. support for Japan through its alliance, that hasn't escalated to really have severe levels of violence. And so, so that's an example where protection by the U.S. Navy or through its alliances more broadly can help to maintain peace. All right. So if you were to summarize the key factors that can trigger the onset of a conflict, what would they be? So, yeah, I just mentioned naval power. I would also say uncertainties in maritime law. So in the mid-1940s, President Truman declared that the U.S. went from a three nautical mile customary law area to a 200 mile continental shelf claim. And so that put into disarray a lot of countries' claims. And the United Nations Law of the Sea Convention, or UNCLOS, was created to try to standardize the areas for countries, territorial sea, contiguous zone, and exclusive economic zones. Two other factors that I think are interesting. One is democracy. So I find that pairs of democracies have the highest risks for having maritime conflicts. Can you name an example? Yeah, US and Canada have multiple conflicts. Britain and Iceland and the Cod Wars. Canada and Spain have had several conflicts. I think these are interesting because democracies in general do not go to war with each other in what we call the democratic peace. And so this is an area of diplomatic contention that we see a lot of action between democracies and partly because they're more developed and you need better economic development to have large fishing fleets and to drill offshore. But also we find that climate change is a potential source for additional maritime conflicts because countries' claims for their territorial sea or EEZ areas stem from the land And if rising sea levels, say, change where the the coastline begins, then that shrinks countries' claims to marine resources. And so I have a paper with two of my graduate students, Cody Schmidt and Bomi Lee, where we find that climate volatility increases the chances for these diplomatic and militarized clashes over maritime areas. And so I think as climate change proceeds, we're going to see more and more of these kind of issues arise. All right. And then next step, when you look at the potential militarization of a maritime dispute, what would you say are the warning signs? What increases the risk of militarization? My work is part of what's called the issue approach to world politics. And what we try to do is to categorize the diplomatic issues that countries have in terms of contention and then to differentiate them on a scale of what we call salience or importance. And so our Basic prediction is that 
sounds simple, that the more countries care about an issue, the more that they will be willing to use militarized tools to pursue their claims. But we separate what we call tangible factors, like things that could be divided, like fish or oil, from intangible factors, things like is this my historic homeland or is there a religious sacred site that's important to me or an ethnic group that lives there? And so we find that as you increase both tangible and intangible salience, you get more chances for militarized conflict over those issues. And so if you have things like oil and strategic locations, you get more militarization. We also find this one's pretty interesting that the presence of migratory fish stocks increases the chances for militarized conflict between countries. And the Russia-Ukraine escalation in the past few years, including at sea, also shows how if countries have multiple issues in contention, so they're contesting who owns Crimea, which is territorial, they're contesting the maritime boundary um, in the Sea of Azov, and they're also contesting over the treatment of ethnic Russians in Ukraine. And so because they have all of these issues that are simultaneously in contention or what we call issue rivalry, we would expect a case like that to be more likely to escalate. And in fact, it is, right? Russia's uh, moving more troops along that border recently. All right. I read from Derek Rossman, a senior analyst at RAND, who talks about the gray zone operations in the South China Sea as designed to win without fighting. How does that feature in your model? Because that strategy does not focus on militarization, but also not on a peaceful settlement. Yeah. So for each diplomatic conflict that we identify, we code every peaceful or militarized attempt to settle that issue. And territorial disputes traditional land border disputes have the highest rate of militarization. So over 40% of those cases have at least one or more militarized disputes. And the risk of escalation to war is really high. But for maritime issues, uh, we find that about 29% have some militarization, but they're less likely to escalate to war. So in that regard, there's a lot more lower level militarized engagement than traditional like India and China fighting a, a land border war, say in the 60s. Why is that? I think because traditionally those issues don't have the kind of intangible salience. So like the sea is not the location, say, of a, of a sacred site. Uh, it's not linked to ethnic groups in the same way that land borders are. And so because the resources are things that could be divided, then Countries can identify, you know, joint exploration agreements, or it's just easier to come up with peaceful agreements to settle the how you're going to share these kind of divisible resources. All right. So overall, the chance for a peaceful resolution is higher if it's a maritime dispute over, say, a territorial dispute. But what other factors would make it even more likely that a maritime dispute is settled peacefully? You looked at those two. Yeah. So... We found that even though democracies have a lot of maritime conflicts diplomatically, they don't escalate those to war. So that does fit with the pattern of the democratic peace. We find that, again, relative capabilities matter. So you're more likely to get peaceful negotiations if you have some kind of two evenly matched countries. So it's one of the reasons why China and Vietnam, for example, has had quite a few militarized disputes because that 
China has a much, it was like a 17 to one advantage in capabilities over Vietnam versus China and Japan, say in the Senkaku Dialogue. So when you have those power asymmetries, the more powerful state can often use militarized force in an unchecked manner. And that's what a lot of countries in the South China Sea area are complaining about is China. They haven't escalated this yet, but they certainly have the capabilities to do so. And it's one of the reasons why the United States engages in a lot of freedom of navigation operations and other cooperative military exercises to send signals about its willingness to intervene if it does escalate. You mentioned UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And in 2016, an independent arbitral tribunal established that under UNCLOS, the Chinese claim of the areas in the South China Sea was defeated. But Chinese officials called the ruling a piece of waste paper. And so I'm wondering if institutions and institutional ways of peaceful resolution of conflict are so important, if this isn't a huge step back for future conflicts. First of all, countries who have jointly signed and ratified the Law of the Sea Convention are less likely to start new maritime claims. So it helps to clarify their obligations and what they can claim, and they accept that more readily. We've also done a lot of work on conflict management within UNCLOS and find that countries are, who are members are willing to go to court more often. And court agreements or arbitration agreements, they end these kind of contested issues about 95 plus percent of the time. So this arbitration case is unusual uh, relative to most arbitration and adjudication cases. I'm interested in the policy implications you see in your findings. For example, you mentioned the freedom of navigation operations, and Germany, for instance, will participate this summer. But I also read in your research that you don't find significant proof that they are actually helping. Could you elaborate on that? So we looked at whether FONOPS had any effect essentially on militarized or peaceful negotiations over maritime claims. And we found that, yeah, there was no statistically significant relationship. So does that mean that the U.S. shouldn't engage in these things? I don't think I would go that far. Maybe I would say <laughs> that, that the we do find that if the U.S. projects strategically in important areas, then it can reduce the chances for escalation, but it just can't do it everywhere. So it has to make choices about where it's going to send those strongest signals. Does the United States need a larger fleet? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so John Caverly and I had a piece in War on the Rocks recently where we talked about the Tri-Services Maritime Strategy, and we described why we think its proposal to increase the size of the Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines is a good idea. And it, it fits with the liberal internationalist uh, research that I've conducted because we do see fewer maritime claims in eras when the U.S. Navy is strong, relatively speaking. We also find that extended deterrence could be maintained by the U.S. providing naval or other support to its allies And because so many maritime claims happen between democracies, we could see a role for the United States in mediating a lot of those conflicts. So if you look at your model, what conflicts should we worry about? 
I think what's happening in the South China Sea is definitely something to monitor uh, or, or Southeast Asia more generally, because there's been a lot of military buildups, not only by China, but other countries in the region too. I would say the Russia-Ukraine dyad is potentially dangerous in the near future. I think Turkey, Greece, and the Aegean Sea has heated up recently. Israel and Lebanon have just made revisionist claims to their maritime areas. So given their history of conflict, that's definitely another one to watch too. That's scary list. So we got to hope that your model is right, that most of these will find a peaceful resolution. The IR syllabus remains very male and very white. So let's highlight underrepresented groups in our field. What's the best article or book you read recently? In terms of an article, I'd like to recommend Jakana Thomas has a new paper in International Organization that's called Wolves in Sheep's Clothing, Assessing the Effect of Gender Norms on the Lethality of Female Suicide Terrorism. And she studies why suicide attack, bombing attacks by females can be more lethal and in what countries. It's very interesting. And then my other recommendation is a book that I just read on pirate lands Governance and Maritime Piracy, and that's by Ursula Daxecker and Brandon Prince. And if you're interested in piracy, I highly recommend it. Thank you very much, and thank you for doing this. Thank you. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month.